Right. So, um, I understand we have a robust online presence this evening. <laughs> so, uh, we are now in the third week of a new series on parenting. I'm pulling up my notes here. Uh, the, the title of this series is Jesus Take the Wheel, How to Parent So That Your Children Don't Become Garbage People. That is the hope, of course, that uh, our children do not become garbage people. Um, now, in our congregation, there are a number of us who are parents, and there's also a number who are not. Uh, some who might not ever want to be at all, and, and that's totally okay. Um, then there are others who never should have been parents in the first place, and that is people like me. So, funny story from when I was younger. I was about, I think, 14, maybe 15 years old, senior, or I'm sorry, freshman or uh, sophomore about in high school, and my aunt asked me to babysit. Um, my cousins at the time were, uh, I had a cousin who was like five, and uh, another cousin who was like seven, and then the youngest was, uh, was like three. And, uh, and so my aunt asked me to babysit, and at the time, they were going through this weird phase as parents where they decided that they weren't going to discipline their kids, where they decided it's better if they just figure it out on their own. It was like this weird, like, um, new age parenting style where they thought, hey, you know what? Uh, people are basically good, and if we just give them a healthy environment, they're going to figure it out. So they asked me to babysit, and then they tell me, you're not allowed to spank them. I'm like, okay. And then they say, you're not allowed to put them in time out. I'm like, okay. Uh, anything else? And... Um, She's like, you're not allowed to like withhold like treats from them or anything like that. And I'm like, so what do you want me to do? And she's like, you know what? Just talk to them. They'll figure it out. I go, okay. So they, they leave to go on a date. And I am at my grandparents' house babysitting my cousins. Well, my five-year-old cousin was doing something that was really irritating. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he kept doing it over and over and over. And I kept saying, Aaron, stop doing that. Stop doing that. And of course, he wasn't going to listen. I couldn't threaten him with a spanking. I couldn't threaten him with timeout. I couldn't threaten him with, with really anything. And so no matter what I said to the kid, he just kept going and going and going. Finally, my 14-year-old brain comes up with a genius idea. And I say to him, Aaron, if you don't stop, I am going to give you a swirly. And he's like what's a swirly? And I said, well, that's when I hold you upside down and I stick your head in the toilet and flush. And it makes your hair swirl into a swirly. And he starts going, no, you won't do that. His older brother, Ethan, is like, yes, please do that to my brother. And so Aaron is convinced that I am not going to do it. And I'm like, all right, it's up to you if you want to obey. But I'm telling you, if you keep doing it, you're going to get a swirly. So sure enough, uh, he keeps doing it. So I grab him and I throw him over my shoulder and I start walking towards the bathroom. And at first he's laughing because he thinks I'm joking. But the closer and closer we get to the bathroom, the more he realizes, oh, he's going to do it. 
Meanwhile, his older brother is pumped. He's like, this is awesome. And so I say to the older brother, I'm like, when I tell you to flush, flush, because I'm going to have to hold the kid in the toilet. He's like, yes, absolutely, I'm going to do this. So I take Aaron's head and I stick it in the toilet. I'm like shoving him down in there and I'm like, Ethan, flush the toilet. And Ethan's laughing his head off and he flushes. And I pull him up and the swirly's not really great enough. So I stick his head back in and I'm like, flush it again. Now Aaron is crying his eyes out as anyone would be with their head in the toilet, right? So he, uh, he, I, I put him down and he runs off. And then I get down at eye level with Ethan and I'm like, listen, dude, whatever you do, do not tell your parents that I gave your brother a swirly. You promise? And he's like, I promise. So he runs off. For the rest of the day, Aaron behaved, okay? I could just tell him anything or you'll get a swirly. And <laughs> shocker, he, he, he obeyed me. So then my aunt and uncle get home. And what do you think is the first thing that happens? Ethan runs straight over to him and he's like, it was awesome. He gave Aaron a swirly and I helped. I flushed the toilet. I'm like, dude, come on, man. I told you to promise not to tell. And so my aunt and uncle were enraged. They were like, we told you. And I go, "Uh, uh, uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You told me not to spank them and you told me not to put them in timeout and you told me not to withhold snacks you did not tell me to not give them a swirly. And my aunt is like, that should have gone without saying that you wouldn't put my kid's head in a toilet. And I'm like, well, it didn't go without saying. And guess what? He was obedient. So any future time that I ever watched those kids, the few times that it actually happened after that, all I had to say was, don't you dare disobey or you will get a swirly. Uh, The moral of the story is, I don't know why God ever thought that it would be a good idea to entrust me with children of my own, okay? It's a terrible idea, straight from the outset. Do not give this guy kids, but here I am. And uh, so yesterday, we were at the beach, and Allison and I were sitting on the table, and we're watching the kids playing out by the water, and uh, we're talking about the fact that, that we're about to have another kid and, you know, the, the age gap that's between the kids and uh, how old Eli's going to be when Gigi is like in, you know, middle school and like all this crazy stuff. And then Allison made a comment that was terrifying to me, absolutely shook me. I was shook. She said, because Eli's going to be nine on Saturday, this coming Saturday, he's going to be nine years old. And she said, you know what's crazy? We are halfway done raising Eli. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. We are halfway done raising this kid. How did, I, how did we get here? Like, how, how did we get to the point where we're now at halftime? Okay, we're at halftime with this kid. We only have nine more years with him because his life at home is now halfway over. It's terrifying. And I started thinking about all of the things that I want to do to make sure that I do better in the second half than I did in the first half. And so today, I, I want to talk about an aspect of parenting that perhaps we don't talk about enough, and that is being a child. Now, as it has been true with the other messages in this series, um, this material applies to every single one of us, whether we're parents or not. 
Um, it's true for us as individuals. And, and this is something that, that I think if we live out personally, um, as individuals, it will also make us better parents. So, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking uh, this evening at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Um, the words will be behind me on the screen. Those of you who are watching online, you don't have the benefit of seeing the screen, so uh, navigate on your device or open in the scriptures to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And this is a section in the scriptures entitled, Let the Children Come to Me. Beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, him, of course, being Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. So, this is a passage that has inspired a lot of paintings, a lot of artwork. Um, If you were uh, lucky enough to be a kid in Sunday school like me, this was one of the flannel graphs, okay? Jesus uh, in a lily-white, sun-soaked field with a bunch of little kids. And of course, in all of this artwork, we're talking about Tresemme Jesus, okay? We're talking about white Jesus with the flowing locks. Tresemme, ooh la la, that Jesus, okay? And that Jesus is patting all the little white kids on the head. And uh, we have here in this story um, the inspiration for the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, All the Little Children of the World, okay? Um, In the very next chapter, we see Tresemme Jesus go off, and he drives money changers out of the temple, and he's like whipping them, and uh, that white dude is a lot angrier. Uh, But here, it's very gentle, It's very soft. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Or Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me could uh, could have been inspired by this song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong, right? Now here's the thing. On the surface, this passage does not seem to be all that important. It is easy to skip over. It's easy to just skim through to get to the really important stuff. Uh, It doesn't seem to answer any of the big questions that, that most of us struggle with. I mean, look at the passages that surround this text. It's preceded by a teaching about divorce, which is a hot-button issue. You know, the Pharisees have come to him, and they've tried to trap him in questions about divorce. And and we all want to know the answer to the question, uh, what about divorce? Or right after this, it's followed by the story about the rich young ruler. And that story is really relevant to us as Americans, what, what does it mean about money? Does Jesus want us to be poor? And then this story is directly followed by Jesus talking about his death and his resurrection for the second time in as many chapters. Uh, 
Then he performs this incredible miracle of healing a blind man, then the triumphal entry, and then that's when we really start getting into the really important stuff. The last week of his life, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, all, all the good stuff, right? So all that to say, this seems like a very easy passage to just skip over. All it is is Jesus blessing some babies, Let's get to the theology. Let's, let's go to the places where Jesus does something. But I would argue that this passage is actually very, very important. I would also argue that this passage actually sets the stage for those seemingly more important passages that follow. And the gospel writers make this clear. You see, the gospel writers selected a very small number of stories to put in Uh, in their books. And we know this because they say things like, if we were to write all of the stories about Jesus, it would take up all the paper in the world. And so the stories that they do pick are are very significant. And this particular story shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story. That's not an accident. This passage sets a very important part of context for what follows. And that's what I would like us to see. Usually when this passage is taught, there's one major takeaway. And that is, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be like a child. And that's true. And Jesus commands that. But I hope that we all know that it's never quite as simple as just what is on the surface. That the Bible is not primarily about us first. The Bible is first and foremost about Jesus. It is first and foremost about establishing the person and work of Christ. Revealing his character. Revealing who he is and what he does and what he is like. It is a story of Christ. And then secondarily, we fit in to his story. So often we approach the Bible like a rule book, like, like a, a, a guidebook that gives us a checklist of things to do to be right with God. But first and foremost, the Bible is about Jesus. And so yes, this passage is indeed about what kind of person we have to be in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. But first and foremost, it is about what kind of king that kingdom has. This passage reveals the character of Christ. And so we can't just skip over that to get to the instructions to us, be like a child. We will get to that, but first things first, Jesus. So let's set the stage a little bit. Let's let's talk about some of the background that goes into this particular scene. Jesus, at this point, is right in the middle of a teaching tour. He's in a region of Judea that's just beyond the Jordan, and he's teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's interrupted at this point by the Pharisees who test him with questions about divorce. And Jesus, of course, as he always does, flawlessly dances around their trickery, And he continues, but then he's interrupted again. This time, he's not interrupted by people who are trying to test him, but by parents who are bringing their children to him. And the text tells us that their goal, the the goal of these parents, was that Jesus would put his hands on their head and pray over them and bless them. 
And this was a common thing at the time for parents to do. It, it, would have been an, it would have been a very normal thing for parents to go to a rabbi at the synagogue and ask them to pray a prayer of blessing over their child. And so these people are approaching with children of various ages, seeking just that. From the parallel passages that we have in the other synoptic gospels, and from the Greek word that's used here to describe children, these are kids who are anywhere from infancy to 11 years old. And they're coming to be blessed by Jesus. Now, we also have to talk about the culture, the, the, the cultural context that we're dealing with here. This is not a child-centered culture. Okay? At this point, there is no Disney Pixar. Our culture is incredibly child-centered. You might say that there's almost a sense of child worship in our society. The desires and entertainment of children are given a higher premium at this time in history than at any other point. And it's uh, not that way in the first century, especially in first century Rome. In first century Rome, children had no value whatsoever besides the future or the potential future that they would offer the family once they reached adulthood. In this culture, girls had close to zero value, and boys had value in the sense that they were an extension of lineage. But until they reached adulthood, they had no rights whatsoever. And more than that, um, they could be abandoned or even killed by their father or mother without consequence. In the Roman Empire, there was a practice that was common called exposure. If a child was born that was unwanted, the parents could just abandon it outside and expose it to the elements. And the child would starve or it would overheat or it would freeze to death. Um, and, And so abortion or exposure were very common in this culture. It was also very common to have child sacrifice in this culture, to literally bring a child to a pagan temple and sacrifice it on an altar to a pagan god. Now, that's in Rome. In the, in the Jewish culture, it wasn't nearly to that level. Children were viewed by the Jews as blessings from God, and the Jews, of course, were strictly forbidden to abandon their children, to kill their children, to harm their children. But that doesn't mean that they put kids on a high pedestal. Quite the opposite. In the Jewish society, a person's value typically correlated very closely to their age. In in this society, the old and wise are given the most prestigious place. Um, We we see in the, the Proverbs that gray hair is a crown of glory. Elders were most valued and cherished. Children are on the opposite end of the spectrum. They are on the bottom of the totem pole. And so similar to the Romans, the Jews would view their children's future as the value that their children would provide. And so parents would go to a rabbi to seek blessing to ensure a good future for their family through this child. It's also true that in this culture, a man had unilateral power over his wife and children. So Jesus, and later on in the epistles, the disciples were radically countercultural when they emphasized the equality of women and children. 
when they emphasized the equal value of women and children in the family, that was radically countercultural because kids were not given any sort of place of honor in this culture. They were entirely dependent on their parents. They are nothing without their parents. They were, in every sense of the word, needy. And anything they had, it was given to them. They received. And that thought is incredibly important because we're going to come back to that later. So here's parents bringing their kids to Jesus. And the disciples rebuke them. The disciples try to send them away. The disciples say, no, get out. Why? Because to them, Jesus has far more important business to attend to than kissing babies. The disciples, like most other Jews in this culture, expected the Messiah was going to establish a political throne. He's going to overthrow the Romans and he's going to free the Jews from oppression. He is going to lead the uprising. So how is he going to do that with a bunch of kids? No, he needs men to do that. That's what they thought. How is Jesus going to focus on the mission? How is he going to get done the things that he needs to get done if he's wasting time with a bunch of kids? Kids can't help Jesus do anything. They're nothing but a distraction. Interestingly, we have to wonder if the disciples would have rebuked their, the, the parents of these kids if they were bringing kids who were sick, disabled, or demon-possessed. After all, Jesus had healed lots of those kids. But these kids seem totally fine. We don't have any indication that they're sick or disabled or coming for healing. They just want to see the rabbi. They just want to be blessed by him. And the disciples are saying, no, 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 no. There are people with real needs that we need to get to. There are much more important and pressing matters to attend to. Jesus does not have time for this. Go away. And notice here Jesus' response. It says that he is indignant. It says Jesus saw it and he was indignant. It is significant that this is the only time in the four Gospels where Jesus is described with this particular word. Once. And it's here. This word means to be fiercely angry. It means to be appalled. It means to be strongly offended by something to the point of anger. And so, when it says that Jesus was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, we have to picture it properly as the word describes. This was not Jesus looking at his disciples and saying, guys, let the children come to me. It's all good. No, this was Jesus angry, saying through gritted teeth, "Uh, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. He rebukes his disciples after his disciples have rebuked these children. And that would have shocked the disciples. They would have been like, excuse me? Not the response that we expected to get. Now, they shouldn't have been so shocked, considering that this is not the first time that Jesus has said something like this or spoken to them in this way. In the last chapter, he basically told them the very same thing. But it's very clear that they have not learned. They are very slow learners, like me. They believe that the kingdom of God is for valuable people who earn their place. 
But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God belongs to such as this. Whoever does not enter the kingdom like a child shall not receive it. So here's what we need to establish. Before we can look at how we should be children in order to receive the kingdom of God, we first need to ask the question, what does this passage communicate about Jesus? What does the story tell us about him? So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. Jesus is a father giving the kingdom to his children, not a ruler giving the kingdom to those who earn it. Jesus is a father giving the kingdom to his children, not a ruler giving his kingdom to those who earn it. Now, I said earlier that I believe this passage sets the stage for all the so-called important passages that come next. And here's why. In this passage, we see that Jesus' mission is the complete opposite of the crowds, the complete opposite of his disciples, where they are expecting him to set up a political rule and that he needs people to come and join the militia. Jesus, in this passage, establishes that he is actually setting up his eternal kingdom and that those who enter it will be those who see themselves as his child. Not as his co-conspirator, not as his co-worker, not as his co-soldier, as his child. And Jesus gets very angry here. And so it's helpful for us to, to examine the times in Jesus' ministry when he got angry. Because Jesus doesn't get angry often. There, there's only a few passages that we see Jesus getting angry. And so if we look through the Gospels, if we were to do an audit on Jesus being mad, we'd see something that I find interesting. Interestingly enough, Jesus is never once recorded getting angry about something that is said or done to him. Not once. He's never recorded as getting mad because he doesn't get something that he wants. I find that interesting because that's pretty much the main reason we get mad. Typically, we get angry because something has been said or done to us or something that we sh- think should have been said or done to us wasn't. We get mad when we did not get something that we wanted. When we feel like we deserve something, that makes us angry. But Jesus never got mad about that. Jesus is incredibly others-centered. He's incredibly gracious and forgiving concerning things that are said and done to him. This is the same person who, after he is spit on and crucified unfairly, his response is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So when did Jesus get angry? Jesus got angry when people were doing things or failing to do things that prevented or hindered others from entering into the kingdom of God. When someone did something or or caused someone else to sin or kept them from understanding the truth or placed a burden on them that shouldn't have been on them, it made Jesus angry. You might say that Jesus got angry at obstacles to the kingdom of God. He got mad at the religious leaders, often. He got mad at money changers. 
He got mad at death itself. He got mad also at his disciples. But interestingly, he never got mad at tax collectors and sinners. He got mad when someone stood in the way of someone else who was trying to get to him. So what does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he cared far more about the well-being of his children than he cared about his own comfort. He cared far less about how he was treated than he cared about others who were seeking the kingdom being treated by people who should have known better. There's another reason why Jesus was upset. And this also begins to set the stage for what comes next. Jesus is upset that his disciples, his followers, still don't understand why he is doing what he is doing. They still don't understand why he is there. Remember, this story happens shortly before he's going to Jerusalem to clear out the temple, to be crucified, and rise from the dead to beat death itself. And so he looks at his disciples incredulously and essentially says, don't you get it? Don't you understand yet? I'm doing something for my kids. I'm going to work for my kids to provide for them something that they cannot provide for themselves. Don't you dare keep them from me. God is a father going to work for his kids. God puts in the work while his kids play with toys, having no idea how much dad does for them. And so what's interesting about the way that Jesus interacts with kids is that he sets them as the example for his disciples. And we'll get to exactly why in a few minutes, but on, least, on at least three occasions, he also refers to his disciples as little children. Grown men, okay? Gruff dudes. Uh, These were guys who were blue-collar, you know, some of them were thugs, okay? These are gruff dudes. And Jesus refers to them no less than three times as little children. He tells them, guys, be like the kids. Be like the kids. Then on a number of occasions, he's praying to his father, and and he reveals, uh, he thanks God for revealing himself to little ones. And so his disciples, his followers, he views them as his little ones. He views all of them in the same way that that he views the children in this passage. And he fought hard against anything that would keep the kids from coming to him. A number of my college students are are watching, and uh, and you guys know that I sometimes refer to you guys as my swabies, <laughs> my little babies. And, and I get so proud when I watch my swabies doing things like coming up here on stage and, and preaching in, in my absence. When, when you guys are sharing the gospel with friends, that makes me proud because my little swabies are growing up and they're maturing and they're doing what God has called them to do. So by extension of this, all of us are Jesus' little ones. We're, we're his kids. And so before he goes to the cross, before he beats death, he shows up in this passage and tells how badly he wants us to come to him, to approach him, to to sit in his lap so that he can speak blessings over us. That brings us to point number two. The second thing that this passage reveals to us about the character of Jesus 
And that is, God is not too busy for you to sit on his lap. God is not too busy for you to sit on his lap. Far too often, we have the wrong view of God. We view God as being distant. He is far away, sometimes without even realizing it, sometimes without knowing it. We, we view God as if he is uncaring. Like, God has this big world to take care of, and there's so many huge problems. There's tsunamis and pandemics and, 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 and tragedies and terrorism and all this different stuff. God is too busy to take care of my little problems. And I've been guilty of this on a number of occasions. Uh, on a number of occasions, I've been dealing with frustration with some kind of small issue or, or, or something that I view as being small, as unimportant, as it compares to the world around me. Like, I'm dealing with a real pain, I'm dealing with a real frustration, but it's not as important as systemic racism. It's not as important as a worldwide pandemic. So, I hesitate to pray, and it's almost like I'm thinking, you know what, I, I don't need to bother God with that. I can take care of it. God's busy. God's too busy. He's got a lot of other things to take care of. I'm going to help myself on this one. That's crazy. <laughs> That's nuts. God cares intimately about every detail of our lives. We learn in the Psalms that he knows the number of hairs on our head. Now, if you're bald, that's easy. We all know the number of hairs on your head is zero. But for those of us that have hair, to number the hairs on our heads would take a long time. But what that shows is that God knows everything about us. There's no question about us that he cannot answer. He has learned every part of us. He knows every pain, every struggle, every joy, every temptation, every victory, every loss. There's a passage in the book of Revelation where it's speaking symbolically, but it tells us that there is a bottle in heaven that holds the tears that we cry. Not only does he know the number of hairs on our heads, he knows the number of tears we cry in our entire lives. That means that he is so well acquainted with every pain, every hurt, every struggle, every frustration that we experience. So much so that he could number the tears. He is right there with us through it all. Never abandoning uh, abandoning us, never leaving us, Always there, always caring, always attentive, always inviting. Come and sit on my lap. Come and sit on my lap. He's intimately involved in our lives. And what we see here is that he is a God who delights in his children coming to him. It's not a nuisance. It's not a bother. Um, I remember times when I am at home working. And uh, a lot of the church work that I do is done at home, right? So I have a full-time job. And, and thankfully, I'm able to do some stuff there. But a lot of times, I'm at home writing my sermons, for example. And I've got a home office that's right off the dining room. And there have been so many times throughout the years where I'm trying to write, and one of my kids will bust in. 
especially Marisol. She'll bust in and she'll want to sit on my lap. And, uh, and whether she's drawing or playing or whatever. And to my, to my shame, there are times when I'm like, babe, you need to go. I'm busy. You need to go. I'm busy. Times when she's crawling up on my lap and, and she just wants to spend time with me. Because unfortunately, I work way too many hours. That's the reality of my situation. And my kids miss me, and I miss them, and I want to be with them. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm focused, and I'm right in the middle of, of writing or, or doing whatever, and she just wants to crawl up on my lap and squeeze my cheeks together and say, Dada, you look funny when I do this to you. <laughs> and those moments are some of the, the greatest moments of my life. And I hate the fact that sometimes I just tell her, go, babe, I'm busy. That never happens with God. It never happens with God that we go to him and he says, I'm busy. I'm too busy with the problems of the world. That never happens. We always can come to God. We always can sit on his lap. Jesus will always say, let the children come to me. Come on up here, kiddo. Come on up here. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Tell me about your day. Tell me about your feelings. And we can pour out our hearts to God. Point number three. As children are entirely dependent on their parents, we must be totally dependent on Christ. As children are entirely dependent on their parents, we must be totally dependent on Christ. Now, my children are getting to a point now where they can do a lot of things on their own, which is good and also sometimes bad, okay? Eli especially is pretty capable of, uh, of taking care of himself. He also has a little sister who takes care of him. Um, she is often the one who will go into the kitchen and cook something for him. He'll be like, hey, can you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And she's the one who's like, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> And so without us, oftentimes they're doing little things to take care of themselves. But by and large, it is still true that everything they have, they get from us. They are needy. They are dependent. Without us, they die. That is exactly how we must view our relationship with God. We talked about before that in this culture... Anything that the kids have, they receive. They could not achieve anything on their own. They cannot push themselves higher on the totem pole. They cannot accomplish anything without their parents. They're entirely needy. Anything they get, they receive. They do not achieve. The same is true with God. Nothing that we get from God is achieved. Nothing that we get from God is earned. Nothing that we get from God is as a result of us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and doing good enough, uh, having enough good deeds stacked on top of each other, praying enough prayers, going to church enough times, doing all the, the Christian-y things. There's nothing that we get from God that comes from us doing something to get it. Everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a blessing. Everything we have is God bestowing on us something that we did not earn. It's a blessing. 
There is nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. There's also nothing that we can do to make him love us any less. He is going to love us perfectly no matter what. Because his love is not based on us. It's not based on our actions. It's not based on our deeds. His love is based on his character. His love is based on the fact that he is love. It's not just something that he does. It's something that he is. So our salvation is not a result of earning. But that's also true for our sanctification. The entire process of us growing closer to the Lord is still not as a result of us doing enough good things to grow closer to him. All right, well, if I just check off all the stuff on the checklist, I'm going to be a better Christian. That's not how it works. Even the act of growing in Christ is a gift from Christ. It is his work in our hearts that, that he is enabling every step of the way. And so we have to come to a point where we realize we are never going to grow out of receiving. We're never going to get to a point where we're like, you know what, God? I got this. You go and help everyone over there. I'm good over here. All right? I don't need your help. We will never, ever get to that point. And sometimes... God brings us purposely to places that show us our need for him. God gives us very clear reminders through some events in our lives to make us, you know, shake the cobwebs out of our head and go, hey, you know what? I really need God. I really can't do this on my own. He will bring us to places and situations that display, yeah, I can't do this. I can't do this. Church planting is one of those places. I never wanted to do this. It terrifies me. It scares the crap out of me. All I wanted to ever do was just preach. That's literally all I wanted. I want to travel. I want to preach. I want to show up, teach from the Bible, and then leave. But God has called me to this, to to be the pastor, the under-shepherd of a flock, because every single day I have to get on my knees and be like, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I desperately need you. God will also reveal the sin in our hearts. He'll reveal to us the places that, that we would gloss over. He'll reveal to us the places where we are so desperately wicked That show us our need for him. In my pride, I am an incredibly self-righteous person. I I, I tend to view myself as being better than others. That's a sin struggle that that I have. Where I'll look at at my life and and then I'll I'll compare it to other people. And I'll go, you know what? I've done some some bad things over here, but I've never done that before. I'm not one of those people. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee, and God has to come and show that to me to make me sit there and go, oh my God. When, when the Apostle Paul, in his letters, referred to himself as being the chief of sinners, where, where he said that God's grace is displayed in me, the worst sinner, the chief of sinners, in order to show the all-surpassing riches of his mercy and grace. That's a very incredible thing for Paul to say because he was Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew of Jews. 
He did all the religious things right. Everything right. He was viewed in his culture at at his time as Mother Teresa. Okay, he's the most righteous dude you could possibly think of. And yet Paul is the one saying, there's nobody worse than me. And, And that's not false humility. That's Paul recognizing I view myself as being entirely self-sufficient. I view myself as someone who doesn't need God's help. And so when God revealed that to him, when God revealed the depth of his own self-righteousness, Paul said, oh my God, I am the worst. We need to view ourselves as being entirely dependent on dad or else we are doomed. We are entirely dependent on Christ. We never grow out of receiving. Finally, point number four. This is where we finally get it is best done. When you take the blessing that you have received and you pass it on to your kids. When you take what God has given, given you and you give it to them. When it's not about you, when it's not about you being a good person or a good parent, parent, it's about you taking what God has given you and you pass it down the line. Uh, take a look here at verse 16. The kids have come to him. They're sitting on his lap. He's, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, child shall not enter it. And then in verse 16, it says this. And he took them, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying, laying his hands on them. He took them in his arms and blessed them. The word there in verse 16 for blessed is the Greek word eulogeo. And what that word means, it, it's, it's, it's to consecrate something as unto the Lord. It is to bring an offering to him. It, it is literally, literally to offer something to God and say, Lord, this belongs to you. It is entirely yours. I am setting this apart for your service. I am setting this apart for your holiness. I am offering this as something that I used to own, but I don't anymore. It's yours now. Uh, we looked a, a couple of weeks ago at the story of, story of Hannah. Hannah, in, in, in the, the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel, was someone who desperately wanted a son. She was barren. She did not, did not have children. And she prayed, Lord, if you would just bless me with a, ch- with a child, I will give that child back to you. And then she, then she kept that promise. When, when her child was born, she, she brought the child to the tabernacle and she gave him to God. To God. And she prayed, and there's that beautiful prayer, prayer known as Hannah's song, where, where she, she praises God for answering her prayer, her prayer. She thanks him and worships him, saying, thank you so much for giving this to me. Now I keep my promise. He's yours. God, take him. He will be in your service, in your tabernacle for, forever. And then she left. Can you imagine how hard that would be for a mother to leave her son, the one that she's prayed, prayed for, the one that she's wanted, the one that she's put so many tears, tears into, and she drops him off and goes back home. The tears that she would cry as she walked out, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine. But then she would come back. When the family would come, would come back to worship there at the temple, she'd come back and, and she'd bring him little gifts, gifts that she had made. She, she made him a little robe. She made, she made him little priestly, you know, things to do his duties, duties before the Lord. But then she would leave again. She had con- consecrated this child unto the Lord. She had, she had blessed him. 
She's saying, she's saying, God, this is yours. And that, that is our duty as parents. Says he took them into his arms and blessed them. Our duty is to take the children into our arms. To take them into our arms and hold them. And squeeze them and enjoy them. To, to, to have fun with them. To take them into our arms and to, and, to, and to connect with them emotionally. Take them into our arms and, and to carry them. But most importantly, we take the kid into our arms and we bless them. We eulogio them. We consecrate them as unto the Lord. We, we take what we learn about following after Jesus. And we pass it down to them. We show them what it looks like to live for the kingdom over, over everything. We, we display for them what it looks like in tangible, tangible, real ways every single day. Kid, watch me, because I'm living for Jesus. I want to show you what it looks like to live for Jesus. I also need to show you that I'm completely dependent on God. My, my kids need to know that I am a weak, broken, needy servant of Christ. Not, not that I have it all together. And as men, as dads, we struggle with that so much. To pretend like we've got, got it all together. To pretend like we don't have weaknesses. To pretend like, like I'm a man, I can't show tears. That's garbage. That, that's pride. My kids need to know, Daddy need, needs Jesus. Daddy is a hot mess without, without God. I need him every day. And so do you. We, we need to teach them... That just as they can crawl up on our, on our laps and talk to us about anything, bring to us anything that they're dealing with, anything that they're struggling with, anything that their little minds are, are, are mulling over, they can, they can crawl up into our laps. In the same, same way they can crawl up into God's lap and let God, God the Father love them. There is literally nothing else we can, we can offer our kids that isn't nearly that important. Not even close. That's what, I want, that's what I want to spend my life doing in the second half. The second half that I have with Eli. It's halftime. And I'm here in the, lock, in the locker room trying to, to evaluate. All right, what, what are we doing the first, the first half? What are we now going to do in the second half? How, how can I improve? What, what mistakes have I made? What, what, what good, th- good things have there been? What do I need to do more of? So I, can, so I can go out in the second half and do a much better job than I did in the first half. First half. And when Marisol, I'm in the middle of the second quarter. Already. Somehow. Now. It's the middle of the second quarter. And with little Juliana Goso, the game is about to begin. Again, just here in a matter of weeks. Little woman come out, come out. And right now I'm in the locker room giving giving a pep talk before the team hits the field. And in just a few weeks we start. And I'm hoping that the 18 years that I spent with that little one, one will be even better than the 18 years I spent with these two. And whatever kids God blesses me with in the future, I want to do a better job tomorrow than I did yesterday. Yesterday. So wherever you are in life, what will you do? If, if you're single, single, if you're watching this, you, you're single, you don't have kids, how are, you, how are you going to be a child of God? 
How are you going to take these things, things and, and, and adopt the gospel of kingdom over everything into your, your life? If you're dating, you're maybe looking at marriage in, in, in the future. Saying to yourself, well, maybe someday I'll be there. Still, still today, how can you practice the art of being a child of God? If you're engaged, if, you, if you're married with no kids, right now, what does it look like to be, to be a child of God, to invest in relationship, to pour into each other in, in this way, to support one another, in being needy, dependent servants of Christ for each other, showing weakness, weakness being truly honest. And for those, for those of us that are parents, for those of us that for some unknown reason God has entrusted us with children, it's nuts. Listen, if you've never, never experienced it before, you go to the hospital, she has a baby, the doctors give you that child, and then after a matter of days or hours, they send you home. With no instruction manual, with no return policy, with, with nothing tangible other than good luck, you'll figure it out. out. <laughs> That's idiotic, if you ask me. me. And by the time I, uh, I, I became a dad, my own dad had passed away, and I couldn't call, call him and be like, Dad, how do you do this? Not that he would have said anything besides, you'll figure it out, kid. Because <laughs> that's how it was. How can we, no matter where we are in life, practice the art, art of being a child of God and then train up our, up our children to do the same? That is, what, that is what we've been called to. Let's pray.